Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 118, If You Be Hide, I'll Be Seek. Well, hello! Oh, it has been such a long time, and I apologize for that. Uh, Some of it has been just plain old ordinary life, like my son having his third and, we hope, final surgery for his ear. Some of it has been... um, I hate to admit it, but National Novel Writing Month, which I'll talk about more later. And then the holidays were suddenly upon us. It never occurred to me that returning home on, let's see, December 22nd might make holiday merriment difficult. (laughs) We had a lot to do in a very short period of time once we returned home. But we had a great and very successful trip. Our son is well, as are we all. I, however, while we were in Los Angeles, contacted some kind of nasty bug thing. And you'll still hear some of the graveliness in my throat as I continue to speak for the podcast. Uh, It's going away, though. But really, two days ago, I thought I was going to have to put up another short public service announcement saying, no, really, I want to do a podcast, but I can't. But now I'm feeling much better. Thank you. Some of it, I'm sure, is probably due to the we. We caved. (laughs) We, the parents who said we were only going to ever get our children wooden toys. We caved, and with all of the grandparents and extended family, pooled our money and got a Wii for the children. One of the reasons why we got the Wii is because it's family participatory, and so we can all bowl on days when the weather is too hot or too cold or too rainy or snowy, because we've had some hard freezes already in Arizona, although today was 70, I can't complain. But uh, recently it was a high of 48, so it looked a little bit more like the rest of the country, but not, not nearly like the Northwest right now. Northeast got it a little while ago. Now the Northwest is under it. So far, Tucson hasn't gotten actual snow. But you never know. It's been a wacky winter so far. So we have the Wii, and I have therefore been able to exercise very easily. I've been playing tennis with the boys, and bowling with the boys, and golfing with the boys, and yoga Wii fitting with the boys, And it's all been really rather wonderful. We've been having a good time cracking each other up. And even little Aiden, who's about to turn five, has gotten in on the action. So I credit the Wii with my lungs recovering as quickly as they did. I can still feel it, and I'm definitely still coughing. Like, uh, well, like a tubercular patient in the morning and at night, but I seem to manage during the day. And uh, NyQuil is seeing me through the night, which is horrible, but there it is. I know that's like 17 different kinds of drugs all mixed into one, but it works. And I sleep. And those, those are two rather useful things right now. Some of you who have visited the Craftlet page will notice that there is a link to a thing called First Giving. That is not donating to me. That is, as far as I can recall, because I put it up quite a while ago, uh, 
a tax-exempt donation to the National Novel Writing Month group. That would be the Office of Letters and Light. They don't just host National Novel Writing Month, which is kind of silly fun, but it's, it's useful if you think that getting people to be creative at any age is an important thing, and I think our audience does tend to believe that. The other thing that they do is they host the Young Writers Program. And those of you who are in education know that the things that are first to get cut when the economy gets bad is anything related to art. And art has now gone so far as to include literature and creative writing. Uh, That trend started well golly, uh, many, many years ago, well early in my career. uh, It was horrifying and awful, and the trend has continued. Um, Certainly the ability to understand irony and metaphor is not nearly as as important as to write a memo clearly these days. And while, obviously, I understand the importance of being a thorough and clear writer in the workplace, you who know me so well know that I also value literature. Well, literature is getting short shrift. So I have put a link to First Giving on my Craftlet blog. Um, uh, So many of you have been generous with your time, with your gifts, with your donations in this last part of the year. And I know the economy is tanked and all of us are hurting, uh, myself included. I just got a small reprieve. I have been unemployed for a month now. But uh, I've gotten a small reprieve in that they've brought me back to at least teach one class at the university. They had literally had to cut, this was after the last podcast, they had to cut all of the adjuncts. Everything was going to be taught by grad students. They have brought back some of us, and I'm lucky enough to be one of them. So that's, you know, a little bit of money, but I think I am going to wind up having to substitute teach. All of us, I know, are scrambling uh, you can see it just on the spinning groups on Yahoo that everybody is destashing and selling their books and selling their fiber and selling everything. I do have links actually in that same vein to a couple of Etsy stores and it is pronounced Etsy. Thank you for connecting me to the page that proves that it's Etsy. Um, I'm in the show notes today, there are going to be a zillion links, some to Etsy stores, some to... Um, some interesting things that people have sent in. Uh, Oh, I'll talk about them when I get to them. I have my list because I know I'm going to forget something. And the first thing I have already forgotten is to mention our library. For those of you who are listening to Craftlit for the first time, first, welcome. Uh, Many people come in midstream and that's just fine. Many, many of those midstreamers wind up going back and downloading everything else. So If you are new, I hope you feel free to go find those old episodes and listen to some of our previous books. They have been a lot of fun. Our library can be found easily by going to the craftlit.blogspot.com page. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a link to our free library of back issues or episodes. I think of them as issues. Uh, It will link you to direct MP3 files, or I think you can still get them all at iTunes. Although iTunes has had its problems. We had some problems in November and in December. I think it's settled down now. But there is our library. Uh, Our title today, If You Be Hide, I'll Be Seek, is not my own personal 
moment of genius. That's actually a line from the book, and it is my favorite line in these the opening chapters of Jekyll and Hyde, which we'll get to soon. We have a winner for the November 2008, yeah, I'm a little late, uh, our November 2008 incentive winner is Tabitha Jones. Tabitha Jones of Unionville, Missouri will be receiving, as soon as I can get my overwhelmed but to the post office, will be receiving a copy of the Mason-Dixon knitting book. Tabitha, I hope you enjoy it. It is wonderful. So that'll be a present for you in the new year. A little bit late, but you know, better late than never. And our first incentive of January 2009, our first 2009 anything, will be the book Mixed Media Self-Portraits, Inspiration and Techniques. I know I've talked about this before because I reviewed it a few months ago. It is uh, an interweave book. It's from the good people who bring you cloth, paper, scissors. I'm rapidly becoming very interested in all of this. And I got a lovely note, which I seem to have not printed out uh, quite a few months ago. Actually, probably not that many months ago, maybe two months ago, maybe only a month ago. Time has flown from a lovely reader whose name is escaping me right now, and I'm apologizing, who said, you know, back in the beginning, you said you kind of apologized that you couldn't get the name Knitlet for the podcast because it was already taken by a series of books, and that now, in retrospect, Craftlet seems to have been a much more appropriate name because <laughs> because I'm a hoe. No, because I'm a polygamous when it comes to my crafting. I have many, many different things going all the time, spinning and knitting and now painting and artsifying things. And so this mixed media self-portraits book, Inspiration and Techniques, I hope will infuse one of you with some really cool ideas of funky cool things you can do with your copious free time. (laughs) Yes, I know. There are some really great quilting ideas in this book. So if you are a quilter, this might be a good time to donate as this incentive might be kind of interesting for you. If not a quilter, then maybe just, golly, maybe if you just have a sewing machine, this will give you some ideas, uh, because it's not quilting the way that you or I probably think of it. There's some lovely, lovely ideas. It is a wonderful book. So, January 2009, incentive, woohoo! So I mentioned NaNoWriMo. November is National Novel Writing Month. I have signed up for it three times in a row. The first time, I think I typed all of 124 words. The second time, I made it almost 25,000 words, which is halfway to the finish line. This year, not only did I finish and write 50,000 words in the month of November, I actually hit the goal early by two days. I was very proud of myself, and then immediately whisked the boys out of the house so that my husband could work nonstop on his novel for a day and a half, and he won this year as well, which is very exciting. His book is actually finished. Mine has at least another 25,000 words to go, which is honestly a little terrifying. I... I'm still working on it. I'm still plugging away. The first seven chapters are solid. And what had happened was, since we were doing 
this NaNoWriMo thing, I found myself writing whenever I had time, which often meant handwriting in a journal, which meant I didn't have the actual typewritten manuscript with me. So I just kind of wrote the part that I was inspired to write at that time, which left me with bits and pieces of the whole book, but nothing completely linear when I was done. So I sent the file off to our local FedEx Kinko's, and I had it printed out and spiral bound. And when my husband and I had a marvelous 24-hour, well, maybe 36-hour respite trip to Portland together, we read each other's novels on the plane. It was lovely. And his is spectacular. His writing always is. And to my great joy and satisfaction, he enjoyed mine too, and had some really great comments and really great criticisms, not in that kind of snarky way. But, you know, this part isn't holding together. Have you figured out why this isn't holding together? And then we get into a discussion and inevitably we come up with much better ideas that way because we, we build off of each other and you get that wonderful kind of creative spark, which doesn't happen nearly enough. And when it does, it's joyful and exciting. And it makes me really, really happy to be lucky enough to be able to find the time to write. So NaNoWriMo was exciting for me. I also published two articles. Those of you who check the Craftlit blog saw that there was the Lime and Violet article on the wonderful crocheted hats. You can uh, get a link to that article directly from Craftlit, uh, craftlit.blogspot.com, or you can go to Lime and Violet's Daily Chum and find it there from early December. I also, those of you who receive spin-off, if you saw the Armchair Traveler section and saw that it was the Sonoran Desert, that was written by me with the help of two of our guild members who had actually been to those places. I haven't been lucky enough to get to go on any of our field trips, so that kind of stunk for me. But it was a great article, and I'm very happy with it. I also managed to film finish my dad's socks. <laughs> those of you who said, please just kill them already. I finally finished driving back from the surgery, actually driving to the surgery. I turned the heel and then driving back from the surgery I managed to finish knitting the 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 actual foot the socks fit and I delivered them two days before Christmas this year I didn't knit for anyone at least not complete projects this year what I did is I knit single socks for my boys and for my husband and they all got them in a bag with a card that said does it fit Two of them fit, one of them wasn't long enough. So the two that are fit, I'm finishing the second sock, <laughs> avoiding the second sock syndrome by force. And the one that needs some repair work and needs to be lengthened a little bit for my almost five-year-old is, uh, that's coming along. It's much easier that way. I'm very happy with having done that. I, uh, I got a watercolor a day calendar so I continue with the watercoloring. And in fact, for Christmas this year, because uh, purse strings are tight for all of us, I went to the Office Depot store and I got some nice cardstock. Avery makes uh, fold in half jet printable card stock. And so I printed my watercolors, I scanned them and then printed them onto the note cards and I gave everybody note cards for Christmas with some of my watercolors on them and they were all very happy, which of course made me very happy. On that family note, I have been able to spend more time with my grandfather, who you know is, is living here now. It's been 
a real blessing. He's he's an amazing man, and bits and pieces and sparks and moments of who he was still shine out every once in a while, and when they do, it just makes the time that I spend with him all the more valuable. And so it's been it's been good to have the holidays also remind us all of us how important family is and I know I am not the only one who's felt that way I've gotten lots of notes um, a wonderful note from Nancy um, gifts from listeners Meg and Dr. Largent O'Dell and uh, it's just been overwhelming thank you thank you thank you and thank you because you have become in a very odd and interesting way extended family and in fact Becky uh Becky, who has recorded for us before, Becky is going to be, apparently, moving to Tucson. She and I got to spend a wonderful night out down in the old barrio, so she actually got to see the old part of Tucson, albeit at night when it was dark. But she did get to see some of the really cool architecture down there, and uh, I think is coming back to town for New Year's, and that bloody reminds me, I need to write you back, Becky. Uh, It has been a whirlwind, as you can tell. So, Good news all around for everybody, for me, and I hope, I hope, I hope everyone had wonderful, wonderful holidays thus far, and I hope you have a wonderful new year. And I'm sorry I wasn't able to get a podcast out for those of you who are traveling. I know you like to listen to podcasts when you travel. I personally caught up on Brenda's podcasts when I came back from Portland. What a gift. I got to walk around Portland, her hometown listening to her. I caught up on almost four podcasts. That's just pathetic. And now my husband gave me a book on tape or a book on CD called um, You Suck. (laughs) It's a vampire story. (laughs) And it's called You Suck. Get it? It's wonderful. I've listened to the first CD so far and it's hysterical. So I'll put a link to that as well. And now a spoiler alert. If you have never seen a Warner Brothers cartoon or any other derivative piece of modern memorabilia that is directly derived from Jekyll and Hyde, you don't know what the mystery is. I suggest you stop now and go to the LibriVox site, download it yourself, and then after you've listened to the 10 very brief chapters, come back and listen to the podcast. I am going to treat you throughout this entire book as though you already know the end of the mystery. Because We've talked about Brechtian analysis before and in a very Brechtian way. I, I actually think you can handle knowing the ending on this one. It, I think in some, way it, in some ways it helps you understand the book better. So I'm just telling you up front, I'm going to talk about it like you know it. Now, now we get to the meat of our episode. The moment you have been waiting for, the start of Jekyll and Hyde. I consistently spell that darn name J-E-C-K-Y-L-L, and it is J-E-K-Y-L-L, and I'm sure there's a good reason for it. And I'm willing to bet that it has something to do with Robert Louis Stevenson being Scottish. (laughs) That's my introduction to Robert Louis Stevenson. Robert Louis Stevenson was born in Edinburgh. He's an interesting character himself, and there is a lot of mythology that is built around his writing this book. And bits and pieces of it will come out as we go. But uh, not unlike Mr. Mark Twain, Stevenson had a wife, 
had a kind of a scandalous beginning to their marriage, but he has a wife, had a wife, who also was responsible for reading his manuscripts. He was very sickly. He had weak lungs. He eventually contracted tuberculosis, although that wasn't what killed him when he was 44. Yes, my husband is a year older than Stevenson was when he died, and I have three years more to go. So that's a little daunting, but interesting stuff about Stevenson. Uh, He was bedridden, Uh, for a lot of his life, but he did manage to travel. He was always looking for a better climate and eventually wound up in like Samoa, which is where he died. I I can't think of any place more beautiful to go than that. If you're going to kick off, kick off in Samoa. So he had uh, a lot of traveling for a sickly person that was pretty impressive. And he was bedridden quite a lot. And his wife wound up reading his manuscripts and then giving him notes. I have a feeling, a sneaking suspicion, that one of the reasons you will not see many women in this story, and actually no named women, come to think of it, is because she probably had him cut the women out. And when we get to that part of the book, I will tell you why I think she did. You will probably be able to guess before we get there. Stevenson, as you probably know, wrote adventure stories. His first two books that were widely published were Treasure Island and Kidnapped, both of them successful. Unlike quite a few books that we have read, this was successful immediately. Treasure Island, Kidnapped, and particularly Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde's a very short book. It was sold for a shilling in England and for a dollar in America. And actually, they hesitated to print it I think, in America until a favorable review came out, because, um, as you can imagine, it was kind of controversial, this being the Victorian age. And on that note, this this was published in 1886, kind of the height of the Victorian era. And one of the reasons why I thought this book would be particularly interesting, coming off of the tale of Little Women, which is, you know, a, a, a good, wholesome in some cases didactic, in that it it teaches you good behavior, a story about uh, growing up and becoming good, smart, satisfied, and strong women. This kind of takes the opposite side. Not that it teaches you how to be a good, smart, kind, gentle man, but that it points out the problems inherent in being that good. So those of you who have run screaming from the room because Little Women just was a little too cloying for you and focused a little too much on being good and made you just want to scream and stamp the floor, this book is for you. One of the things that I find most interesting is that this book parallels and I think, and I have to double check this, I read an entire literary criticism essay, but I have to go back and check the dates. I think this actually predates Freud's publications. I I believe Freud was starting his work at this point, but just like Shakespeare being such a brilliant, bloody genius with things like Hamlet and Macbeth, where, and Romeo and Juliet, where he understands human psychology at a level far deeper than scholars did and doctors did at the time. Stevenson is another of those people. And There's a a book by Robert Bly called uh, the, uh, I think it's called The Little Book of the Human Shadow. It's hard to find. You'll probably find it on Amazon. Maybe not, actually, because I remember looking for it about a month ago. 
But if you can find a copy of it, it's a very small book. And I know Robert Bly back in the 80s got a lot of bad press for his Iron John book. Forget that. Just ignore it. Move on. Take a deep breath and let it go. And take a look at this little book on the human shadow, because it's kind of a companion piece to Jekyll and Hyde. I'm having a very difficult time right now. I'm reading my notes, and you'll hear me kind of stopping and starting because I've had to get new glasses and they are those progressive lenses and so I'm looking at the computer screen to make sure that the audio is doing what it's supposed to do and then I look down at my notes and I'm not focusing in the right place and everything's suddenly blurry and then it's okay again. It's very very scary. Not unlike Coleridge and Kubla Khan, this story, the tale of Dr. Jekyll and the strange tale of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, evidently came to Stevenson in a dream, or at least part of it did. Kind of like Stephanie Meyer says that the first images of Twilight that came to her was, uh, it was a dream that she had of Bella and Edward in the glade. And that moment was something that she dreamt, and then everything kind of built off of it. My my novel has nowhere as nearly as romantic a beginning as Stephanie Meyer's. I'm going to have to create some kind of mythology for how my book started because it's just not, it doesn't make a good story yet. Stevenson had a dream of one of the transformation scenes, and evidently this all built off of that. The thing that I think is interesting is that he seems to have been tapping into a lot of the undercurrent of angst in the Victorian era. Uh, We all know that the Victorian era was one of great decorum and gentility and manners. And if you don't know what that really means, I suggest you watch the movie The Age of Innocence and look at a few things. Number one, look at how everybody is dressed. The layers of repression on the women and the men are most clear in that movie. The the numbers of dancing gloves that the men have waiting for them at a ball scene, so that if they sweat through one pair of dancing gloves, there is another pair waiting for them. The inability for a betrothed, engaged couple to kiss in public. I mean, the the layers of repression are just stunning. And my understanding is that Scorsese, when they did The Age of Innocence, they did their research and they knew what they were doing. The, the numbers of pieces of silver on the table and the different glasses and uh, it just goes on and on. Anyway, Age of Innocence will give you a wonderful visual for what was going on during Jekyll and Hyde. Men obviously lived in their world, women in theirs. You you even see uh, echoes of it in Mary Poppins, um, as late as, as that, the, the era of suffrage. This is considerably earlier. But there was another thing going on during the Victorian era. This is the reign of the empire. And there was a certain part of the population that was already clearly feeling uncomfortable with what was happening out in the colonies and that the the cultural consensus was slowly starting to question whether this was appropriate 
to go and impose your way of life on another people. It was also a time where, and if you've read Conrad's Heart of Darkness, you know where I'm going with this, where there was something dark and sensual and sometimes even sexual about these other cultures that seemed more primitive, I'm using this word on purpose, and therefore more primal and connected to urges and passions and all of those kind of unseemly things that Victorians really weren't allowed to talk about or deal with (laughs) at all. Um, It doesn't do good things to a human being to repress one entire facet of your personality, whether it's your sexuality or your sensuality or your anger. I mean, certainly we've talked about this before. Gandhi was angry. (laughs) He was very angry. He channeled his anger in a resistance movement that was very aggressive in a nonviolent way. We've we've had a hard time in the English language dealing with the contradictions of these concepts. Martin Luther King was never passive. It it anger's not always a bad thing, but during this time period <clears throat> it absolutely was and Uh, aggression, uh, a lack of decorum, a lack of gentility, all of this stuff was very, very bad and was enough to exclude you from polite society. And that is something that makes the the main character, who's really the one telling you the story, his name is Mr. Utterson. And like Dickens, sometimes these character names seem to resonate in uh, oddly poetic ways. Mr. Utterson is probably the single most boring character in this entire book, except for one fact, and it's something for you to keep your eye on all the way through. Unlike a good Victorian gentleman who would very likely shun someone who had fallen from social grace, once he has decided that you are his friend, he whether he casts judgment or not, it doesn't seem to stop him from being a friend. And watch how he allows himself to continue to have rapport, and in some cases great concern for, people who the rest of society is probably starting to wonder whether they should be paying attention to. Uh, that's one of the things that I think is, is interesting about uh, about this book. The other thing is I think that while Huck and Jim are the beginning, you know, Mark Twain's Huck and Jim are the beginning of the modern male buddy movie thing, you know, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid or Easy Rider or whatever, I kind of feel like Jekyll and Hyde is the beginning of <clears throat> modern dualistic um, popular culture. I mean, certainly you see it in the Hulk, where you have uh, one very mild-mannered character turning into the Hulk. Or um, for those of you who recently saw 
The Dark Knight with um, uh, with the heartbreakingly brilliant Heath Ledger. Uh, there's Two Face Harvey Dent. These kinds of explorations of the darker side of human nature, uh, it's something that we haven't let go of since Jekyll and Hyde. It certainly hit a nerve. Uh, one of the things that I want you to pay attention to as we listen to the books and as they, they as we listen to the chapters and as the book unfolds is the assumption, I think, going into a book like this is that you're going to have two pure elements. You're going to have a purely good Dr. Jekyll and a purely evil Mr. Hyde. That is not exactly the way Stevenson went with that. We'll talk about this more as we go along. These early chapters are obviously exposition. They are, you know, slow but not boring. You definitely lay the groundwork. One of the things I want you to listen to in in this first first chapters, one thing we we have a lovely reader. You will think when you first hear him that he is monotonous, and he is not. He he uses his voice appropriately when he needs to. Actually, I think he has an extraordinarily Victorian delivery, and I have a feeling this was done on purpose, and that's absolutely appropriate, and I think really lovely for for this book. Listen to how the two gentlemen, Mr. Utterson is one of them, in the opening of the book, how they comport themselves when telling tales. These are two men who take, you know, constitutional walks, and it honestly sounds like they never use the names of anyone who they speak about, and and very likely don't talk very much on most of their walks. Gossip is abhorrent to both of them, and it will take you some careful listening to hear to hear how they talk about that because they're very careful and very cautious in their language so without any more yammering at you i'm going to give you the first chapter of the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde this recording is by david barnes london june 2006 the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson Chapters 1 to 3 Chapter 1 Story of the Door Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, was a man of rugged countenance that was never lighted by a smile, cold, scanty, and embarrassed in discourse, backward in sentiment, lean, long, dusty, dreary, and yet somehow lovable. At friendly meetings, and when the wine was to his taste, something eminently human beaconed from his eye, something indeed which never found its way into his talk, but which spoke not only in the silent symbols of the after-dinner face, but more often and loudly in the acts of his life. He was austere with himself, drank gin when he was alone, to mortify a taste for vintages, and though he enjoyed the theatre, had not crossed the doors of one for twenty years. But he had an approved tolerance for others, sometimes wondering, almost with envy, at the high pressure of spirits involved in their misdeeds, and in any extremity inclined to help rather than to reprove. 
I incline to Cain's heresy, he used to say quaintly. I let my brother go to the devil in his own way. In this character, it was frequently his fortune to be the last reputable acquaintance and the last good influence in the lives of down-going men. And to such as these, so long as they came about his chambers, he never marked a shade of change in his demeanour. No doubt the feat was easy to Mr. Utterson, for he was undemonstrative at the best, and even his friendships seemed to be founded in a similar catholicity of good nature. It is the mark of a modest man to accept his friendly circle ready-made from the hands of opportunity, and that was the lawyer's way. His friends were those of his own blood, or those whom he had known the longest. His affections, like ivy, were the growth of time. They implied no aptness in the object. Hence, no doubt, the bond that united him to Mr. Richard Enfield, his distant kinsman, the well-known man about town. It was a knot to crack for many what these two could see in each other, or what subject they could find in common. It was reported by those who encountered them in their Sunday walks that they said nothing, looked singularly dull, and would hail with obvious relief the appearance of a friend. For all that, the two men put the greatest store by these excursions, counted them the chief jewel of each week, and not only set aside occasions of pleasure, but even resisted the calls of business that they might enjoy them uninterrupted. It chanced on one of these rambles that their way led them down a by-street in a busy quarter of London. The street was small and what is called quiet, but it drove a thriving trade on the weekdays. The inhabitants were all doing well, it seemed, and all emulously hoping to do better still, and laying out the surplus of their gains in coquetry so that the shop fronts stood along that thoroughfare with an air of invitation, like rows of smiling saleswomen. Even on Sunday, when it veiled its more florid charms and lay comparatively empty of passage, the street shone out in contrast to its dingy neighbourhood, like a fire in a forest. And with its freshly painted shutters, well-polished brasses, and general cleanliness and gaiety of note, instantly caught and pleased the eye of the passenger. Two doors from one corner, on the left hand going east, the line was broken by the entry of a court, and just at that point a certain sinister block of building thrust forward its gable on the street. It was two stories high, showed no window, nothing but a door on the lower story, and a blind forehead of discoloured wall on the upper, and bore in every feature the marks of prolonged and sordid negligence. The door which was equipped with neither bell nor knocker was blistered and disdained. Tramps slouched into the recess and struck matches on the panels. Children kept shop upon the steps. The schoolboy had tried his knife on the mouldings and for close on a generation no one had appeared to drive away these random visitors or to repair their ravages. Mr. Enfield and the lawyer were on the other side of the by-street, 
but when they came abreast of the entry, the former lifted up his cane and pointed. "'Did you ever remark that door?' he asked, and when his companion had replied in the affirmative, "'It is connected in my mind,' added he, "'with a very odd story.' "'Indeed,' said Mr. Utterson, with a slight change of voice, "'and what was that?' "'Well, it was this way,' returned Mr. Enfield. "'I was coming home from some place at the end of the world, "'about three o'clock of a black winter morning, "'and my way lay through a part of town "'where there was literally nothing to be seen but lamps. "'Street after street, and all the folks asleep. "'Street after street, all lighted up as if for a procession, "'and all as empty as a church.' till at last I got into that state of mind when a man listens and listens and begins to long for the sight of a policeman. All at once I saw two figures, one a little man who was stumping along eastward at a good walk, and the other a girl of maybe eight or ten, who was running as hard as she was able down a cross street. Well, sir, the two ran into one another, naturally enough, at the corner, and then came the horrible part of the thing, for the man trampled calmly over the girl's body and left her screaming on the ground. It sounds nothing to hear, but it was hellish to see. It wasn't like a man, it was like some damned juggernaut. I gave a view hallo, took to my heels, collared my gentleman, and brought him back to where there was already quite a group about the screaming child. He was perfectly cool and made no resistance, but gave me one look so ugly that it brought out the sweat on me like running. The people who'd turned out were the girl's own family, and pretty soon the doctor for whom she'd been sent put in his appearance. Well, the child was not much the worse, more frightened, according to the sawbones, and there you might have supposed would be an end to it. But there was one curious circumstance. I had taken a loathing to my gentleman at first sight. So had the child's family, which was only natural. But the doctor's case was what struck me. He was the usual cut-and-dry apothecary, of no particular age and colour, with a strong Edinburgh accent and about as emotional as a bagpipe. Well, sir, he was like the rest of us. Every time he looked at my prisoner, I saw that sawbones turn sick and white with the desire to kill him. I knew what was in his mind, just as he knew what was in mine, and killing being out of the question, we did the next best. We told the man we could and would make such a scandal out of this as should make his name stink from one end of London to the other. If he had any friends or any credit, we undertook that he should lose them. And all the time, as we were pitching it in red-hot, we were keeping the women off him as best we could, for they were as wild as harpies. I never saw a circle of such hateful faces, and there was the man in the middle, with a kind of black, sneering coolness. Frightened, too, I could see that, but carrying it off, sir, really like Satan. "'If you choose to make capital out of this accident,' said he, I'm naturally helpless. No gentleman but wishes to avoid a scene, says he. Name your figure, 
Well, we screwed him up to a hundred pounds for the child's family. He would have clearly liked to stick out, but there was something about the lot of us that meant mischief, and at last he struck. The next thing was to get the money, and where do you think he carried us but to that place with the door? Whipped out a key, went in, and presently came back with the matter of ten pounds in gold and a cheque for the balance at Coote's. Drawn payable to bearer and signed with a name that I can't mention, though it's one of the points of my story, but it was a name at least very well known and often printed. The figure was stiff, but the signature was good for more than that, if it was only genuine. I took the liberty of pointing out to my gentleman that the whole business looked apocryphal. And that a man does not in real life walk into a cellar door at four in the morning and come out of it with another man's cheque for close upon a hundred pounds. But he was quite easy and sneering. Set your mind at rest, says he. I will stay with you till the banks open and cash the cheque myself. So we all set off, the doctor and the child's father and our friend and myself. And passed the rest of the night in my chambers. The next day, when we had breakfasted, went in a body to the bank. I gave in the cheque myself and said I had every reason to believe it was a forgery. Not a bit of it. The cheque was genuine. Tut tut, said Mr. Utterson. I see you feel as I do, said Mr. Enfield. Yes, it's a bad story, for my man was a fellow that nobody could have to do with, a really damnable man, and the person that drew the cheque is the very pink of the proprieties, celebrated too, and what makes it worse, one of your fellows who do what they call good. Blackmail, I suppose. An honest man paying through the nose for some of the capers of his youth. Blackmail House is what I call that place with the door, in consequence. Though even that, you know, is far from explaining all, he added, and with the words fell into a vein of musing. From this he was recalled by Mr. Utterson, asking rather suddenly, And you don't know if the drawer of the cheque lives there? A likely place, isn't it? returned Mr. Enfield. But I happen to have noticed his address. He lives in some square or other. And you never asked about the place with the door? said Mr. Utterson. No, sir, I had a delicacy, was the reply. I feel very strongly about putting questions. It partakes too much of the style of the day of judgment. You start a question, and it's like starting a stone. You sit quietly on the top of a hill, and away the stone goes, starting others, and presently some bland old bird. The last you would have thought of is knocked on the head in his own back garden, and the family have to change their name. No, sir, I make it a rule of mine. The more it looks like Queer Street, the less I ask. A very good rule, too, said the lawyer. But I have studied the place for myself, continued Mr. Enfield. It seems scarcely a house. There is no other door, and nobody goes in or out of that one but, once in a great while, the gentleman of my adventure. There are three windows looking on the court on the first floor. None below. The windows are always shut, but they're clean. And then there is a chimney which is generally smoking, so somebody must live there. 
and yet it's not so sure, for the buildings are so packed together about that court that it's hard to say where one ends and another begins. The pair walked on again for a while in silence, and then, Enfield, said Mr. Utterson, that's a good rule of yours. Yes, I think it is, returned Enfield. And for all of that, continued the lawyer, there's one point I want to ask. I want to ask the name of that man who walked over the child. Well, said Mr. Enfield, I can't see what harm it would do. It was a man by the name of Hyde. Hmm, said Mr. Utterson, what sort of a man is he to see? He's not easy to describe. There is something wrong with his appearance, something displeasing, something downright detestable. I never saw a man I so disliked. And yet I scarce know why. He must be deformed somewhere. He gives a strong feeling of deformity, although I can't specify the point. He's an extraordinary-looking man, and yet I really can name nothing out of the way. No, sir, I can make no hand of it. I can't describe him, and it's not for want of memory, for I declare I can see him this moment. Mr. Utterson again walked some way in silence, and obviously under a weight of consideration. You are sure he used a key? he inquired at last. My dear sir, began Enfield, surprised out of himself. Yes, I know, said Utterson. I know it must seem strange. The fact is, if I do not ask you the name of the other party, it is because I know it already. You see, Richard, your tale has gone home. If you have been inexact in any point, you had better correct it. I think you might have warned me, returned the other, with a touch of sullenness, but I've been pedantically exact, as you call it. The fellow had a key, and what's more, he has it still. I saw him use it not a week ago. Mr. Utterson sighed deeply, but said never a word, and the young man presently resumed. Here is another lesson to say nothing, said he. I'm ashamed of my long tongue. Let us make a bargain never to refer to this again. With all my heart, said the lawyer, I shake hands on that, Richard. So, the story of the door, our first brush with Mr. Hyde, or at least a story of him. And um, I think the other thing to keep in mind as you listen to what is, in fact, a very brief book, we'll do chapters two and three next week. Um, it's an urban story. And the descriptions of London, um, some of you will know this better than I, but I seem to recall reading that the London fog, which you hear about in this book and which you often hear about in um, Sherlock Holmes stories, that the London fog that was as thick, thick as pea soup, <laughs> say that 10 times fast, was actually caused by coal burning stoves and fireplaces. And that the particulate matter of the coal when it mixed with moisture in the air, created a barrier above which the moisture in the air could not rise. And it uh, created those very, very thick London fogs. And, uh, you know, did things like give people 
asthma and made it easy for tuberculosis to pass around because people couldn't breathe. Uh, although tuberculosis isn't caused by coal fire smoke. Anyway, you get the picture. Uh, once they stopped burning coal, the environment in London changed. Interesting. Kind of sounds hmm, similar. Anyway, there's a couple of parallels going on here. One, urban fear. You have uh, urban fear in this story, and there are certainly urban legends and fear-mongering that go on even today. You have the uh, repression, which kind of, I don't know, it kind of makes me think a little bit about the, you know, you go into a bookstore and there's 4,000 self-help books, and they all talk about feeling good, and I don't know about you, but I'd rather feel content <laughs> than, than happy. Happy seems odd. I am happy a lot of the time. I joke around a lot, but um, the self-help stuff makes me nervous. So, I don't know. Uh, I am finding some interesting parallels between Jekyll and Hyde and now, just like I did with Little Women and, you know, everything else we've read so far and everything we're going to read, because Scarlet Letter 2. Thank you, those of you who have recorded your Scarlet Letter chapters and gotten them to me. Much appreciated. I am creating the backlog as we speak. Uh, if you haven't signed up for reading a chapter and you are on Ravelry, please do so. And, uh... I think I'm going to call it a night. I'm hungry. I wasn't feeling very well earlier today, but now I am actually hungry. So I'm going to call it a night. I hope you are all well and have a wonderful New Year's. I hope you are surrounded by friends and family if you can stand them, because <laughs> not all of you can, and I certainly understand that. And uh, I hope this New Year brings peace and prosperity and safety and sanity and contentment to us all. All the best. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, blogspot, B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or at craftlit.libsyn.com. Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>